Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, I'm interviewing Bill Gates a man who probably doesn't need much introduction. I met the co-founder of Microsoft several times over the years, and I'm always impressed by the range of scientific, political and environmental subjects that he's following, and the sharpness of his insights. Gates is somebody who believes absolutely in the power of science and technology to improve the world. He's used the many billions of dollars he's made in business to fund the Gates Foundation, which works to reduce global poverty and to improve public health. But as you'll hear, he's now very worried that geopolitics are getting in the way of efforts to fight poverty and climate change. So, is even Bill Gates now a pessimist? You know, GPT-2 was kind of a trick. GPT-3, ah, it's starting to say a few interesting. GPT-4, it's like, wow. That was Bill Gates expressing his astonishment at how fast artificial intelligence has advanced over the past year through the various iterations of GPT, an artificial intelligence system based on large language models, or LLMs. When I met Gates at the Munich Security Conference a couple of weeks ago, our conversation ranged very widely, from climate to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and why he thinks there are too many of them. Gates also explained why he thinks the ambition to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees is now unrealizable, but why we also shouldn't lose hope. And why he thinks American efforts to restrict China's technological development are doomed to fail. But since we were meeting at the Munich Security Conference, the natural starting point for our conversation was the war in Ukraine. It's hard to overstate what a terrible tragedy the Ukraine war is. I mean, you know, for the Ukrainians, of course, you know, mind-blowing suffering taking place there. But the shock to the whole system, we've got, you know, fertilizer, it's, it's expensive, there's less being used. Well, where is it being used less? In Africa. They're the ones that get crowded out as the price goes up. Africa's a huge net food importer, which is something that can be changed over a period of a decade, particularly with better seeds, better advice, better credit. But, you know, they're suffering immensely. And it all comes at a time where the economic cycle is making the debts of these countries, which have accumulated a lot, a lot more painful. So for the last decade, they've sort of gotten cash flow by increasing their debt and not paying much in interest. Now, those interest costs are high, and the debt resolution processes appear to be at the best slow because of the complexity that there's a big private piece, a big Chinese piece, Anyway, so Ukraine has got people distracted. I don't disagree with that. If you look at aid budgets ex-Ukraine, they will go down. You know, Europe is the most generous in aid budgets, but they've got refugee costs. They've got in-country economic aid that they're giving, and that appropriately counts in the aid budgets, which are actually quite limited. So the portion that goes to places like Africa, it's just going to be down. There was a lot of focus on the effect on food prices a few months back when the Russians were briefly talking about blockading the Black Sea. There's less talk of it, 
but is the issue still very intense? Well, food prices are way above their average. They're not at their peak. Fertilizer prices are much higher. It floats with the natural gas price. And Russia is a huge fertilizer manufacturer, and most of that is not getting out. So it means Africans are just using less fertilizer. So you see problems not just now, but in the future, because crop yields are going to be lower. And so yes, the soil quality will be lowered. That costs you for about three seasons if you cut back. Africa's never used nearly as much fertilizer as it should because the credit and accessing the seeds that can actually take advantage of the fertilizer. Africa has very low agricultural productivity, about a quarter of what the U.S. or Europe has. The seed improvements that took place in the 70s and 80s that were termed the Green Revolution, that didn't take place for African ecosystems. And they had the greatest variety of crops where sorghum, chickpea, millet, cassava, the African food production has more variety than any place on earth. I mean, it's kind of surprising how little variety the non-African food basket is with the big cereal crops. But weirdly, that innovation system is grossly underfunded. So if this problem is pretty directly traceable to the Ukraine war, you know, unless we're surprised, the war's going to go on for a while. What should we be doing to try to mitigate the effects? We've made huge progress in some areas. Childhood health in Africa is greatly improved. There's still a lot to do. We've gone from a million malaria deaths a year to 400,000 malaria deaths a year. The pandemic was the first time where vaccination rates actually dropped and malaria deaths actually went up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we need to get back on track. You know, the foreign aid we have, we have to make sure that it's very well spent, where health is one of these things that we do, even in the DRC, Somalia, we can get vaccine coverage. It's not like, you know, pretending you're going to build the road or something. So, you know, we need to keep that visible. In the period 2005 to 2015, which is the MDG period, poverty and global health really were visible. Now, because of all the geopolitical things going on, and the SDGs, sadly, we knew it would happen that everybody wanted to piggyback, you know, so there's like 190 numbers instead of really two numbers, child to death, poverty rate. So we don't have as much visual clarity. You know, if you ask young people what's the moral cause that animates them, climate is high, whether they mean climate mitigation, climate adaptation, mm. not clear, but just the basic inequity and in what's gone well with that, what still needs to be done, we haven't kept that on the agenda. You could say that should be in the climate adaptation side of climate. That should be rephrased as continuing to reduce inequity, even in the face of climate making it harder. You know, so it's still okay to fund vaccines, even though that's not labeled as climate. Money. Are you sort of saying that a lot of the issues that you've been pushing on for a long time are less sexy than they once were because they're being displaced by other issues, whether it's Ukraine or climate? Well, for the parents whose children are dying, I think it's still as relevant. I don't think, you know, that's diminished as a... I mentioned the Yeah, I know, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yes, I agree. Yeah. No, sure. It's right, I suppose, to press quite hard because that is what the... Yeah, so we, the movement, which includes lots of groups, as well as the foundation, we have to figure out how we get visibility because there's a lot of good news on what got done and we're going to have less resources I'm not an expert on when the war will end. I hope when it does that those resources 
are increased. I know the innovation where we're learning how to kill mosquitoes in new ways and we're getting new vaccines and we're understanding malnutrition, the ability to take the money and by having these new tools have more impact, that's actually pretty exciting. The Ukraine war does not influence the speed at which you know we figure out how to make a TB vaccine or TB drugs or TB diagnostic. That is full speed ahead. Yeah. And if you wander around this hotel, if you talk to the diplomats, they're all very worried about the global south. Why don't they agree with us on Ukraine? Is that partly, do you think, because they have a different set of issues which they feel are being sidelined or even adversely affected by the war? Well, the global south is a lot of very disparate countries, some of whom's leaders represent their people and some of whom leaders don't really represent their people. You know, if China appears to not want you to pick sides, that's tricky because the economic relationship that most countries want with China, they don't just go out of their way to upset China. So I wouldn't say it's direct Russian influence. It's a little bit, hey, the global South has always felt they're an independent voice, maybe more pacifist naturally. And then, okay, is that going to affect their neutrality? Yeah. So do you think the US is going to have to get used to or is gradually getting used to the idea that it's no longer the sole superpower and that that comes with diminishing influence in some ways? Well, our influence at the end of World War II is so extreme that there was always going to be some dilution from that. The U.S. influence is still unbelievable. And for most world problems, like being ready for the next pandemic, the big problem is the U.S. isn't showing up and the world expects U.S. leadership. But we're still caught up in the, was WHO influenced by China? Or, you know, we're not as forward-looking as long-term actor in some of these tough problems as we used to be. So it's not that the world's rejected the U.S. in all these cases. The world wants the U.S. to show leadership. I mean, you mentioned the pandemic, and I know the Gates Foundation did a lot on it, but you got this unbelievable blowback where you're suddenly the focus of all these conspiracy theories. And it seemed to me for a very long time, you actually did rather well in being apolitical and being accepted as apolitical, but those days seem to be over for you now. I wouldn't call the fringe group that believes whatever conspiracy theory, you know, caused the pandemic, whatever crazy thing is. I wouldn't identify that as a political group. It's not like that's some huge block of voters. It's just a phenomena of conspiracy theories that are less acute today now that the pandemic's not as front and center. But I've noticed, for example, for George Soros, who's had this for a long time and is more explicitly political, I think it's made the Open Society Foundation's work much harder. Oh, absolutely. You know, what was done to George Soros being attacked in Hungarian politics, that's different. For me, me it would be more, is the acceptance of vaccines been damaged by the pandemic? And I'm very worried about that, that a lot of countries had really great acceptance of vaccines. And the fact that in the U.S. and some other places... It was all that vaccine skepticism. That hasn't stayed in the U.S. You know, when we ask people, do they trust vaccines? There's a number of countries, including some in Africa, where that number's gone down a lot. Mm. And, of course, one of your big drives has always been to eradicate polio. Do you think one of the indirect effects of this might make that slightly harder? Yeah, we always, we had in the early 2000s, these rumors that the polio vaccine was to sterilize Muslim women. 
Mm-hmm. And it took us three years of working with Muslim leaders where they would visibly give the polio vaccine to their kids to get the level of compliance up so that we were able to get polio out of Nigeria. Now, you know, the two places we've never eliminated wild polio are Pakistan and Afghanistan. In Pakistan, the CIA used a vaccination campaign not to vaccinate kids, but rather to see if Osama bin Laden lived in a particular compound in Abbottabad. So they were hoping a child would come out and they would look at the blood and see if it was a person related. Mm. And that was uncovered and that hurt vaccines and vaccination quite a bit that in that case it was a CIA created activity. Anyway, you know, it's kind of this non-intuitive thing that the way to save your child's life is to have a metal needle stuck into their arm many times, but it's the truth. I mean, it's hard to see any upsides of the Ukraine war, but do you think that indirectly it might help the battle against climate, which obviously you read a book about quite recently, in that it accelerates the green transition? I'd say pretty modestly. I mean, it's certainly caused some coal plants to stay open. It's meant that non-Russian sources of natural gas are expanding at full speed. Cutter's got the North Field. They look brilliant for having done that. So it's got as many negatives as positives. Not having a natural gas dependency, particularly a Russian natural gas dependency, maybe that will be accelerated You haven't seen the R&D budgets change that much. The thing that slows down renewables is actually not their economics. It's more the permitting of the fields, whether onshore, offshore, and the permitting of the transmission. And so you see, like, the wind manufacturers are having a tough year, but it's all permitting related. Permit the fields, permit the transmission. You know, think through the grid. You may have to put some storage in to make sure it's reliable. Will this cause those regulatory impediments to be taken away? I'm not sure because it's complex local politics that denies the transmission line or the wind field. And, uh, you know, you come to conferences like this, one of the slogans that you always used to hear was keep 1.5 alive. But I think uh, you think that's dead. No, and it's, it's a nice religion, but it's just not realistic. And You want to be in the real world on how quickly can you change electricity, transport, industry, agriculture, buildings. And there's many, many sources of emissions from many, many, many countries. And most of those emissions are in middle-income countries. We have to do a lot of R&D and invent things in the lab. Then we have to get them out and scale them. Then we have to get their price down then we have to fully deploy them in rich countries. And when we've done that, then the middle-income countries will see that and say, oh, that's how you want us to make steel and cement. And then we have to scale them up in all of those countries. And 2050 is only 27 years away. So, you know, sadly, we're going to emit more than we'd like to. The less we emit, the better. This is not one of those things that if you cross the threshold... You don't have to keep trying. Yeah. But I mean, for those who say, but if we cross 1.5, if we get to 2.5, that is disaster for the world. I mean, it sounds like we will get to 2.5, so we're going to have to mitigate. I think we can avoid 2.5. Even 2.0, if things went extremely well, is not out of the question. Depending on how well we do, politically, investment, 
innovation is a huge part of that. Right now, these so-called green premiums are very high. Green cement costs twice as much. Green aviation fuel costs twice as much. And you not only have to green the electricity system, you have to more than double its size because energy has to come from somewhere. The only form of clean energy that's easy to move around is electricity. So you take your car transport energy, you take it from the electric grid, you take a lot of heating homes from the electric grid, you take you know, making fertilizer, making steel, you are pulling out a lot of electricity. And so that you have to green the grid and make it two and a half times bigger. And then we've just never done anything like that. We're not even close to the rate. There's no country that is at the rate they would need to be for that green grid. And yet, if you draw a line where it's going up every year, that means you took the permitting issues for both the fields of substance transmission and somehow solved those. What about some, uh, you know, you keep such a close eye on all the different technological breakthroughs and possibilities, invest in a lot of them. Do you see any kind of uh, something big coming along that might help us? Well, certainly if you had electricity from nuclear fission or fusion, because the amount you have to build to make that plant versus building a solar field or a wind field, it's just 20 times easier, cement per amount of energy. And you put it right where you need the energy. And so if you can solve the challenges there, which are costs, safety perception, waste, and I, I think there's a good chance we can. We can't depend on that because the fission industry has basically died because its costs were far too high. But both in fission and fusion, that would make a huge difference if that can come into the mix. We should continue to build renewables at full speed because that's an important part of the mix. But if we can mix in a significant amount of one of these two, and there's more money going into it. There's 14 fusion companies. I'm invested in four of them. There's a lot of fusion renaissance. I'm a huge investor in one of those. What about, I mean, AI is the topic at the moment. It's all over the papers. Do you think that can help? Well, it AI is going to play a big role, and I'm very involved in Microsoft OpenAI work just as an advisor. And also, wearing my foundation hat, you know, we're going to build educational tutors out of this. We're going to build a medical advisor for low-income countries where most people never get the help of a doctor in their entire life. So yes, any place where you have limits that having an ability to read and write can help relieve those limits, like to streamline the work doctors do or to take the administrative overhead of the health system and reduce that pretty dramatically. This idea of computers being able to read and write, nobody knew when that would come along and now it's arrived. Are you worried by strong AI? I mean, there was this piece just recently, somebody's been talking to Bing's chatbot and said that they found it profoundly unsettling and that it seemed to have a mind of its own and to be trying to manipulate them. Well, there's there's all these people trying to make the AI look stupid. But anyway, I mean, it's fine. There's no threat. The technology most people are playing with is a generation old. It's the version three compared to what's integrated into Bing, which some journalists have and will be opened up more broadly. So it's much better. It still makes mistakes. You can still get it to say crazy things. You have to provoke it quite a bit. So it's not clear who should be blamed, you know, if you sit there and provoke it. But 
The improvement over the next few years in terms of the accuracy and the capabilities will be very rapid. Are you worried by the idea that at some point the AI might develop a mind of its own, you know, have its own ideas about what it wants to do and escape human control? You know, in the long run, if AIs get good enough, it raises questions about not just did you write your paper, but, you know, what will the demands for certain jobs be and, you know, what's the value of an education? That's a long ways out in the future. There will be some labor displacement, but mostly there'll be more efficiency. Your ability to research articles or have things summarized for you so that you can write better articles, that you know, helping doctors be more efficient. We're very backlogged in terms of do we have enough educators, enough doctors? And so for the next decade, there's a lot of very good things. If it gets smart enough, which there's no predicting, they, this reading and writing came from scaling up. You know, GPT-2 was kind of a trick. GPT-3, ah, it started to say a few interesting. GPT-4, it's like, wow. You know, I challenged them in June to do some things GPT-3 couldn't. And then by early September, they showed me that they could do those things. And that was very surprising to me. About what things were they? Oh, pass an advanced placement biology exam. Mm -hmm. And I knew a lot of biology questions that I had de novo, so it couldn't have been trained Mm -hmm. in these things. And these are super abstract things that, you know, when you read a biology textbook, you don't remember the words, but you store, you know, what's mitochondria? What are organelles? What's the energy balance? You, in a very rich way, store that knowledge in order to be able to apply it. And until really GPT-4, I didn't see that as being, you know, super impressive. This was very impressive coming many years before I thought it would. I thought we'd have to add explicit knowledge storage and manipulation, as opposed to just scaling up LLMs. And then a few clever things, but it's mostly a gigantic LLM. So if it's surprising you now, there'll be more surprises in school. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, now we kind of understand why it's not good at math and we're making it be good at math. And you know, there'll be a lot of competition. Google has very strong people. Last try on this, but doesn't there come a point where we stop making it do things and it can start making us do things. If you have an AI that only a few humans have access to that's a lot better than some other AI, your main problem is not the AI doing things. It's those people, they can do cyber attacks. They can do spoofing and things. So you hope the AIs are broadly available and not just some small group controlling them. I like the fact that I know how to allocate foundation money, hire scientists, motivate scientists, pick okay, we should do TB because nobody's doing that. And if it ever gets to the point where I just type in, hey, you know, take my money and spend it for me, and I think, oh, shit, it's doing better than I would have, that will create a yeah, sense of purpose. You don't want it to be more intelligent than you. Or... Well, that seems selfish. I don't know what I think. <laughs> I could, you know, goof off then. But so, yeah, there's a little bit of labor market in the near term and eventually a sense of meaningful contribution, and eventually the control thing. But I don't list that high on the list of my concerns. Last issue I'd really like to get your view on, because I know you're an internationalist and you believe in technology's ability to improve the world. So I remember 10 years ago doing a lunch with the FT with you where you were telling me, you know, be positive about China's emergence, the tech that it can do, etc. And now you look at the world 
particularly the mood in the US, and there's efforts really to block China's technological advance. How do you feel about all that? It's the world's not gone the way you want it to. Well, I don't think the US will ever be successful at preventing China from having great chips. You know, we are going to force them to spend time and a bunch of money to make their own chips. But given five to 10 years, and they can take money out of their poverty program, the idea that we could ever sell them chips, we're just eviscerating that. You know, we're saying make your own jet engines, even your own software, your own chips. And I think that's a shame. And I don't get the logic, given that they're at scale, to catch up fairly quickly. You know, I don't see how that's some gigantic benefit. So, you know, I wish the U.S. and China could get along better. We seem to be on a deteriorating trend, which when we have things like health innovation, climate innovation, that are win-win things between all countries, but the most important relationship in the world is the U.S.-China relationship. I'm disappointed and worried about how that relationship has evolved over the last couple of years. But you think that the American effort, even if one agreed with its underlying thrust, is unlikely to succeed? I don't even get what its success is defined as. To make sure we have less job in our chip industry, to have excess supply in the chip industry, to make Taiwan more attractive. It's complicated. Yeah, I think they would say we're trying to stay ahead of China and they say that China's a military threat and this stuff has military uses and we've got to keep them down. Yeah, and so if you really think there's going to be a war in the next decade, then you shouldn't have warned them that you were going to cut their chips off in advance. I mean, it's very nice to have told them in advance that that would be a problem. So even in that, which I hope never happens, I don't think will happen, but even that scenario, why give them a head start building their own chips? And for the America's tech sector, for you, Microsoft, for Google, whoever, is this going to make their life more difficult? Because, you know, you're going to find it difficult to cooperate with the Chinese who are doing interesting stuff. Microsoft doesn't have a gigantic amount of its sales in China. We have some, but, you know, we're not like Apple, who has 20%. We have a great exchange of smart people, many of whom are in China working for us, some of whom were born in China, came to the United States. So the labor pool benefit to the world in health and software of having this smart Chinese students contribute in these fields, whether they leave China or, or stay in China, is phenomenal. So anything that cuts back on that just slows things down. Okay, so geopolitics is just to conclude, really getting in the way of a lot of the things. I mean, we talked started with Ukraine, we ended with the China. I guess the common theme is that the things you think are important, it's not a great time for them. Well, the human condition continues to improve. I mean, we're doing obesity drugs. We really will have great TB drugs. We'll understand malnutrition. You know, between the infectious disease innovations, the foundation funds, and the rich world disease stuff that the market broadly funds, it's amazing. Assuming we can avoid big nuclear wars or bioterrorism wars, despite all these geopolitical headwinds, life will be better 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Climate is this looming problem that it's going to take a ton of money and innovation and attention to change the industrial base, and we'll be a little behind where we should be on that. But despite all those things, 
you know, unless you're predicting nuclear war or some big bioterrorism thing, the world is improving. That was Bill Gates, ending this week's edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.